This morning we're continuing our uh, couple of weeks in 2 Corinthians 5. So if you could open up to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. That is where we will be this morning. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we, all, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and, and what it teaches us and how it guides us and shapes us. I pray that you'd speak through me this morning, um, that that would be focused on how we live today in light of what you have for us tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we were in the beginning of 2 Corinthians 5 and looked at what our focus should be and how, how really our focus is eternity. That we aren't just focused here on earth, but we are longing, we want heaven. And not some cultural uh, cartoon picture of heaven with pews in the clouds and things like that, but it's, it's really what God actually has for us. That there is a, a future heaven or a present heaven that we will go to when we die if Jesus doesn't come back first. And then after that, there is a new heavens and a new earth where, where God will make all things new and without sin. And that is what we are looking forward to. God dwelling amongst his people without the barrier of sin. And Paul is going to address really the practical side of this focus today. How, basically answering how does what we know about heaven, how does that affect the way I live today? He, he's trying to help us really see how we can prevent ourselves from or misconstruing the reality of, e of eternity that is better than, than what we have in life on earth. Because when we get locked into viewing eternity, it, this can happen especially during difficult times of life, during times of suffering and trial. It can be easy to have an unhealthy longing for eternity. Last week, someone told me about uh, one of their friends who views Christianity as a death cult because we so look forward to life after death. And when you look at Christianity from Scripture, we obviously know that's not the case. But there have been cults that have twisted Scripture to the point where they all have a, a joint you know, suicide, looking forward to death in an unhealthy way. And there's extreme versions of that, but passages like what we have today, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 10, are clear that yes, our confidence is in heaven, and we're longing for it, but that changes the way we live now. That there is a practical part of that. And that, that comes really out of the fact that our life leads, or our faith leads to a whole heart change. That God doesn't just save us and then give us a stamp of approval and then boom, we get into heaven and that's all we have to worry about. No, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us a new heart and a new spirit that longs to obey. That, that our faith isn't just a get out of hell free card, but it is a whole life change. I heard one pastor say it this way this week, that, that we are justified for, the, for heaven but we're also sanctified for earth. That as we live out our faith, we are made more into the image of Christ. That we live out this faith in a way that is totally different than how the world works. 
And part of that is changing, changing the way that our, our desires and our heart works. And I'll plug our new Sunday night theme for the next few months, which is really the problems of the heart. We're going to talk about different aspects and different sins that we all struggle with from the perspective of Scripture. And that starts with next Sunday night, we're, talk, we're looking at biblical counseling, how biblical counseling works to kill the sin in your life. How working through your struggles and your pain works to kill the sin that comes out in the midst of those things. And I know Nathan attests to this. I'm sure Daniel as well. But our most helpful classes in seminary is we got our MDiv, as our, we got our Masters of Divinity, were really the biblical counseling classes. It helped me to see how my heart works, how the heart functions based off of how God reveals it to us and how he's created our hearts to function. So next week, we're actually going to have a panel, a biblical counseling panel, and talk through that. And then from there, we'll talk about things like anger, lust, anxiety, and how scripture answers those struggles, answers those sins. So next week at 6 p.m., we'll, we'll have that panel. But this week, this morning, we're focused on the practical side of longing for heaven, the practical side of looking forward to what God has promised for us. How are we supposed to live in light of heaven? And Paul's main point in these four, uh, these four verses is this, regardless of whether or not we are on earth or in heaven, our primary purpose remains the same. All that we do is done to please the Lord as we live by faith, knowing that we will all be judged for what we've done. And it boils down to three main points. One, we walk by faith. Two, we aim to please God because we know what is coming. So point number one, walk by faith. faith. Look at verse six. So we are always of good courage. Paul starts this section off with so, which might as well be uh, also therefore or because. And when we see those, that word, so, therefore, or because, it's reminding us to look backwards. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, when you see therefore, you have to ask, what is that therefore? And I teach our students this constantly because it's easy to just jump into a text and we see so and just kind of blow past it. But Paul is building this argument. So he's saying so or because of what I've already said, we are always of good courage. In light of the fact that God has a heavenly dwelling that will, will replace our earthly bodies, we live in a certain way, or as one commentator says, because of the convictions which stead us amid our groaning while we are here in this body, we are always of good courage. It's a reminder that we have a source of our courage that is not our own, that when all around us is crumbling, when life is not how we pictured it, we can still stand on the promises of God, and we are always of good courage. Now, we need to understand what this courage looks like because courage can mean a lot, of the thi- a lot of different things. Worldly courage is blind and it is fleeting. It's the ki- type of courage you get in a moment or, or how you might respond to peer pressure. But this is not what the courage Paul is talking about. It's not the courage that we see in, in movies like Braveheart or as one commentary or commentator says, but the courage of Paul and his assistants is not like that of worldly men who face misfortunes and dangers with head erect and flying colors and march right into the jaws of death. They face eternity blindly and rush to their doom. That's not the kind of courage that we as believers have. Our courage is constant. 
It is not fleeting that we get, uh, a fleeting courage that we get momentarily, but it's, all, it's really a confidence that we face life differently. That yes, we know death is coming, but we don't go into it blindly. We know what comes on the other side of death for us. We don't paint our faces fighting for a good cause and jump into the jaws of death. No, we know we go into it with knowledge. We aren't blind to what death, uh, what death has for us. This courage of Paul and his, his companions is the same courage we see with Stephen in Acts 7 or of David as he flees Saul knowing that he is the one who, uh, who gets the throne or of the prophet Nathan as he confronts David in his sin. It's courage knowing that what we are doing, regardless of circumstance, is what God has called us to do. It's the courage we see Christ live out in his own ministry. It's the courage that he shows or displays in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that even though his soul was sorrowful even to the point of death, Jesus says, not my will, but God, your will be done. It's the confidence that, that they are doing what God has called them to do. That, that Paul and his companions are acting as Christ would, that they are doing what is pleasing to God, and they know what's coming for them. They know that they will be rewarded. They know that they have a heavenly dwelling waiting for them and that the Spirit is their down payment. And it's the same courage that we should have. That we're reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, that God has a heavenly dwelling for us, and the evidence of that is his spirit. We don't ignore death. We don't have an unhealthy longing for it. But we put death in its rightful place, under the control of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But Paul expands further. He says, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And this verse is clear that, I mean, and we can attest to it, we are in our earthly bodies, thus we're away from the Lord. We know what he says to Moses, that if, if he revealed himself to us, that his holiness would wipe us out because of our sin. Paul isn't saying that God isn't omnipresent, which is absolutely true and something that he affirms, but he's talking about the direct presence of God the kind of presence that Moses caught a glimpse of when he was in the cleft of the rock, the kind of presence that who, those of, who have gone before us are experiencing now, the kind of presence that we look forward to one day, that we long for, that no matter how bad this life is, we know that's coming for us. But for now, we are called to live by faith rather than by sight. So what does it mean to live by faith? We use this word faith all the time. Scripture uses it. It's a biblical term. But sometimes I think we over-spiritualize it. That it's this, this feeling that, that it's, a, it's not just fact. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is the scriptural definition of faith. It's not uncertainty. It's not what we mean in this world by hope. I have a hope that one day the Raiders will eventually turn it around and be a Super Bowl contending team. But if you're laughing right now, you know how unrealistic that hope is. That's not what our hope is or our faith is like as Christians. As Christians, it is the assurance 
the certainty of things hoped for. It's the conviction, the certainty of things not seen. The author of Hebrews says it is a conviction. And that's why we as Christians are called arrogant sometimes. When you ask someone who isn't a believer, are you going to heaven? They're probably going to say, I hope so. I'm a pretty good person, but there isn't a level of certainty there. For us, we know that certainty doesn't rest on our shoulders. That's why we can be 100% certain that if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we are justified, we are seen as righteous in the eyes of God. When we are saying that we have faith in Christ, we are saying that we are assured that what he did in his life, death, and resurrection is enough for us to be saved. But we aren't just left with this definition in Hebrews 11. If you've read that chapter, you know what comes next. This hall of, of faith, as we call it. Just a list of heroes who lived out this faith. First, let's look at, at Abraham. In Hebrews eleven eight to 10, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in, a, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The author of Hebrews is showing us how much faith Abraham had. Genesis 12, 1 to 4 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make you, or I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 75 years old. He knew nothing else other than his father's land, other than the people that were around him. And God comes in one day and says, Abram, you are going to go to a, a land that I will show you. I'm not telling you what it is. I'm not describing it, but you are going to go to that land and I will bless you and make you a great nation. Abram didn't have much to go off of. He didn't have an entire stack of scripture, over a thousand pages recounting God's goodness and faithfulness as evidence for what he's going to do. He simply obeyed. And not only Abram, but I want to point out that Lot obeyed as well. We rag on Lot a lot, and sometimes rightfully so. Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole debacle, but Lot is still faithful through that. In 2 Peter, he call, Peter calls Lot righteous three times. Wouldn't you want to be called righteous three times in God's word? Lot was faithful as well. Seventy-five years Abram lived in his father's land before God called him. Abraham obeyed because he believed the promises of God. It was this faith that, like ours, brought Abraham into righteousness. Or take Sarah, his wife. Abraham's faithful, but so is Sarah. Hebrews 11, 11 to 2. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. 
Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah considered God faithful. She considered God's faithfulness to his promises and obeyed, knowing who he is. The author of Hebrews continues, verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These people that the author of Hebrews describes in chapter 11 greeted God's promises from afar. They didn't see the fulfillment of God's promises in their lifetime, but they trusted that God would bring them about. Their faith is like ours, but we have a lot to go off of. We look backwards, we see all of the things that God has done for his people, all of the ways that he has been faithful to his promises, and we trust God. And that's a huge blessing. I'm not saying that their faith was greater than ours, it was just different. They looked ahead to the promises of what God was was going to bring. We look backwards and forwards. We look back at the cross of Christ, but we also look forward to the great promises that God has promised to us. And this changes the way that we live now. We see this formula in Hebrews 11, that they had faith and they obeyed. And that's the same thing for us. That's what walking by faith is. We trust God's promises and we obey his commandments. We trust that God is who he says he is, as he says in Exodus 34, 6 to 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And when we walk by faith, we're saying that God is faithful, that he is slow to anger, he is merciful and gracious, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But he will also bring justice against sin. So we trust in his mercy and his graciousness and his faithfulness and put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we say we are walking by faith, we are saying we are trusting that God will do what he says he's going to do. That those who have put their faith in Jesus are seen as righteous in the eyes of God and saved from eternal punishment. By definition, faith is simple. It's not this complex, mystical emotion, but it is simply believing God. Believing that he will do what he says he's going to do that he is who he says he is, and that should reshape our entire lives. The reality of faith and what we're putting our faith in pushes us to the second point that Paul makes, that we aim to please God regardless of where we find ourselves because of the faith that we have. So point number two, aim to please God. Yes, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, uh, yes, we are of good courage. Again, he repeats this confidence that he has. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Not only we as believers are, con- not only are we confident in the promises of God, 
but we would rather be with him. There's that longing for heaven again, that we would rather be with him. What God has for us in eternity is far better than what we have in our present condition on earth. That's faith believing in that. But that doesn't mean we just ignore what's going on around us. We don't just ignore all the suffering and the trials of this world, The people that are outside of the, of the faith are just headed for eternal punishment. We don't pull away from society. We don't pull away from, from the trials and the suffering. Instead, we look to examples like Paul. In Philippians 1, 20 to 26, he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is almost mirroring the passage that we're in today. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul doesn't just want what's best for him. What's best for him, he blatantly says, it is better for him to be with Christ, to be on the other side of all of his suffering, his imprisonment, his torture, his rejection by the people that he loves. No, he knows, he, he discerns the times. He knows what is best for the kingdom. And that's for him to remain, for him to, to continue in his fruitful labor. He sees how necessary his encouragement and his teaching is to the Philippians. So he stays. He doesn't have an unhealthy longing for the future. He sees that, he sees that God hasn't taken him yet, so he remains and does, does what is one, most pleasing and glorifying to God, and two, what is best for the Philippian church. Paul even says he's willing to say, stay because of that necessity that he is, and that's really the blueprint for how we, how we should have this heavenly mindset. That we look at, one, the fact that we're still in our earthly bodies, two, that Christ hasn't returned yet, so we look for what's necessary for the kingdom. Longing for what's ahead, but staying for what is required. And it's with this heavenly confidence that we don't worry about what comes in the future. Paul wasn't worried about what was coming next for him in this imprisonment. He says specifically in Philippians 4 to not be anxious, but to focus on the things that are true. And he says that when writing from prison. We look beyond our own attempts to earn heaven. We look beyond the sufferings and trials of this world, and we look to what is pleasing to God here and now. That should be our goal anyways. Verse 9, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Regardless of where we find ourselves, our goal remains the same. This goal transcends, it goes beyond this world. We will always aim to please God. Regardless of where we are, whether we are in heaven or Christ returns, or we are in the new heavens and the new earth, we aim to please God. 
if we still find ourselves in these burdened, earthly tents, we aim to please God. This pairs well with Scripture's continual comparing of the Christian life to a race or to a a physical, uh, athletic competition. Whether we are training for the race or we are in the race, our aim is always to win the race. We look ahead to the finish line and aim to do the best we can on our way there. 2 Timothy 4, 7-8 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is writing that knowing that he is at death's door, and he looks back and says, I have, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. That should be our goal, that, at, that when we are at death's door, that we can look back on our lives, even amid the suffering, even amid the sin and the struggles. Paul had his own sin and struggles. Just read Romans 7. But he looks back on his life, knowing that God is faithful to forgive, and says, I have, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He kept his eyes on the prize. Yes, he struggled with sin. Yes, he struggled in suffering. But his life was marked by seeking to please God and pushing others to join him. So we must make this our aim as well. We should be seeking to please God just like Paul, just like the other apostles, just like Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, it's not just about salvation but it's about sanctification. It's about the way that we live our lives. When we have put our faith in Christ, he's not just our savior, but he is also our Lord, meaning that we obey him. God's people have always lived by a different standard. As a church, we looked at this in depth. We were in Exodus, and we last summer spent 10 weeks looking at the Ten Commandments. We finished Exodus a few months ago, and we're in the law looking at how God has called his people to obey. Some people will try to say that God is love and that, well, we're already forgiven, so it doesn't matter how you live or that God wants health, wealth, and prosperity for you. In this world, in this life, that's not the case. God does want those things, but it looks completely different. He wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to build up heavenly treasures. He wants us to obey him. The Bible is clear that how we, <clears throat> how we live is a reflection of where we stand before God. Whether or not we obey, it reflects where we are in God's eyes. And that doesn't mean that our obedience brings righteousness, but it's saying that if we are saved, we will have a desire to act righteously. That our faith is shown to be living by our obedience. And that's the promise of the new covenant. We are given a heart that wants to obey. Jesus is clear that our obedience shows our standing. In John 15, 1 to 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You can see that image of cutting away the sinful parts of our lives so that we would live righteously. 
Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Christ, we, Christ, we cannot produce fruit. There is no way that we can produce righteous fruit unless we are in Christ. And if we aren't producing righteous fruit, we will be cast out. Jesus' other parables use different imagery. There's the foolish servants that are cast out, the unforgiving servants that are cast out, weeds among wheat, goats among sheep, wolves among sheep. All of those will be cast out unless you are connected to the vine, unless you respond to the call of the shepherd. John 15, 7 to 10, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Those three verses show us clearly, show us clearly what it means to abide. That when, when we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, when they live in us, when we remain in Christ, we will produce fruit and we will prove to be his disciples. That's what the fruit does. It shows that we are connected to the vine. And when we are connected to the vine, when we abide in the love of Christ, we are keeping his commandments. Just as Jesus showed us during his life that he kept his father's commandments and abides in his love. Fruit is produced when we keep the commandments of God and we prove to be his disciples, to be his people, to be his sheep, when we bear fruit. God has made it even clearer in Galatians 5, 16 to 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. Saying that, that the Spirit is opposed to the flesh and that those things that we want to do are sinful things. He's talking about the sinful things, not the righteous things that we want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, verse 18, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivals, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There is no restriction against these things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This text is clear. That we have crucified the flesh. We have put to death the sin that's in us. We've declared it dead and yet we are still working to kill it in our lives. It's clear. Stop sinning. 
work to kill the sin in your life. Replace that sin with righteousness. Grow the fruit of the Spirit that is, that is in every believer. Every single one of us has received the fruit of the Spirit and apply it to your daily life. That's what living in light of heaven looks like. Killing sin and putting on righteousness. Putting to death what is in us and putting on Christ. We please God by loving him with all of who we are and loving our neighbors as ourselves, whether we are on earth or in heaven or in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the goal. And it remains the same. But this goal is more difficult to achieve the less we know about God. How can you expect to please him if you don't know him? This applies to every single one of us, even if we aren't a believer. If you don't know God and are an unbeliever, there is no way you will will please God. If you are a believer but you don't know God, it's a lot harder to, to discern what is right or wrong. I mean, this applies in everyday life. The less you know about someone, the the harder it is to please them. When Em and I first started dating, the gifts I got got her were a lot worse than the gifts I get her now, at least I hope. When we were a few months into dating, I got her this awful shirt that had turtles on it, and it was like acid wash or whatever. It was like a trendy thing at the time, but it was terrible looking back on it. But the gifts I get her now... I know her better, so I have a better idea of what she wants. It's the same thing for God. The better we know him, the more we study scripture and get an idea of his character and learn about him, the better we please him. The more righteously we live, the more prone to righteousness we are. Do you seek to know God? Are you trying to learn more about him? Are you studying his word every day? Are you like the man in Psalm 1 who plants himself by God's God's word, who saturates himself in God's word, or do you just show up on Sunday mornings? If you've been coming to our church, you know how slowly and methodically we go through scripture. So if you aren't reading God's word, you're only getting bits in pieces, very in-depth, but we must supplement it with studying his word. This truth is simple. If you are in Christ, you aim to please God. You walk by faith. And that should be motivation enough alone. The more we know God, the more we want to obey him. But scripture gives us even more motivation because we will... As we read scripture, we know what comes next. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's important truths we get in these few words. Paul has shifted his focus to the last days. He's going all the way. He's not just longing for heaven, but he's bringing us there. To the final days, he's going to the end times. Every single one of us, believers and unbelievers alike, anyone who has ever lived, must appear Everyone without exception must appear, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Our Lord and Savior will be our judge. Do you know him? That's a motivator right there to say the least. That, and he's being blatantly clear as possible. 
everyone will be judged for every single action. This is not how the world views the final days. Their view might be judgment, sure. But they view it as, as the, these good actions that they have probably outweighing the bad. There's an uncertainty there. If you are in Christ, if you have read the scriptures, you know you are either totally depraved, you are totally sinful. Every single thing you did, would, even if it's mo- considered moral on earth, is tainted by sin and there is nothing we could do to earn righteousness. A few years ago, NBC did a show on the afterlife. And at first, they, they, uh, they reconstruct heaven almost. That they bring about the, what they call the bad place, and the things you do are weighed against the things, uh, or the good things and the bad things are weighed against each other, and pretty much they get to the point where everyone goes to the bad place. They got that point right. But then they completely reshape heaven, and it's really just a participation trophy where you live as many lives as possible so that you eventually do, even if it's just by a little bit, enough good things to get into the good place, which is just you crossing off your bucket list before you just decide to boom, cease to exist as you walk through this archway, and you're done. That's their fictionally constructed view of heaven a participation trophy that ultimately sounds super boring. I am so thankful that that is not what God has for us. That what God has for us is far greater than really what we can fully imagine. We get bits and pieces, we can learn a little bit here and there, but the fullness of it we don't fully understand right now. But before the new heavens and the new earth come, every single person will be judged, regardless of whether or not we we like it. There are no second chances. There are no do-overs. We will be judged for our actions because God has already made himself clear. We know enough about God for us to really have no excuse. Romans 1, 18 to 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has revealed himself in a way that leaves no excuses. The wrath of God, God punishing sin, is revealed against all ungodliness. And what's known about God is plain. He's shown it to us. His invisible attributes, the things that we can't see, are still clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, ever since the beginning, these things are clear to us. So we are without excuse. We can't plead ignorance before Christ. It is clear that we are sinful and deserve punishment for our sin. Even the world will attest to the fact that the world is broken. That this this world is affected by sin. Their solution is just wrong. The only way that we can be righteous is through Christ alone. 
Paul continues and he says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If we are in Christ, we are declared righteous. We can go to that throne ready to praise God for his mercy and his faithfulness. But if you aren't in Christ, what is due, the wages for the things that you have done is death. Because everything that we have done is tainted by sin. Without Christ, you will be weighed and found wanting. You will be declared what you are, unrighteous and deserving of punishment. It's only when we put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior and, and the works that he has done that we are declared righteous. Paul also reminds us of this one final truth. It is Jesus who is the judge. It's not that Jesus is standing off to the side, just highlighting names that he has saved. No, he knows his sheep. They respond to his call. Matthew 25, and we won't read it, but Matthew 25, 31 to 46 paints this super clear for us. About as clear as we can get of Jesus sorting his people. Those who aren't his people will be punished, but those who are his people will be welcomed into eternal life. From the words of Jesus himself, the final judge, we see the importance of living lives of faith, lives that prove that we are his disciples. That's how we are brothers with Christ. That's how we share in this inheritance with him. And we partner with him in aiming to please God, showing our faith, not earning it. We should desire to hear Christ speak so highly of us, that we would be even like Lot, declared righteous because of our faith. It's not a motivation to earn, but a motivation to make God proud. Like the kid at a baseball game, when he lines up to bat, he looks back to see his dad in the bleachers looking at him, beaming with pride. It's the same for us. We should be trying to please God out of our love for him, not trying to earn it from him. Knowing that judgment is coming doesn't turn our works into works righteousness. It's simply a reminder of our motivation, pleasing God so that we can one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a reminder from scripture that what we do in our daily lives matters. That how we live out our faith matters even in the little things that no one sees and even in the big things that show our confidence and courage in Christ. God sees and knows them and will judge them on the last days before our Savior. So where will you be standing? Will you be standing with the shepherd as one of his sheep or will will you be sorted out as a goat ready for punishment? Are you certain of where you are standing? I don't want to, I'm not trying to strike unnecessary fear, but we should all remind ourselves of where we stand. We should all look for that assurance. What are you putting your faith in? Are you putting your faith in your works, which will eventually just be burned up on the day of judgment? Or are you putting your faith in Christ? Seek the answers in God's word and seek it in prayer. Seek it from those around you who know you well. 
my biggest fear for us in a doctrine-loving church is that we produce theological eggheads without a heart. That we would be described like the Ephesian church in Revelation 2. That, we, that God knows our works, knows that we, are, we have kicked out false teachers, that we reject false teaching, but that we, would, that we have forgotten our first love. And he threatens to take away the lampstand to that church. Write doctrine, write test answers might be there, but is, do you have a heart with a true love for Christ? If you are confident that you stand among the sheep of Christ, walk by faith, aim to please God. Kill your sin, pursue righteousness, and seek first the kingdom of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It really is that simple. Our sin is what makes it difficult. So kill your sin, discern the times. Be always of good courage. Know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, be of good courage, though we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, make it your aim to please him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and, and how it guides us. I pray that we would be people who plant ourselves by your word, not just for the right answers to the test or the right doctrine, but out of our love for you, aiming to please you. Thank you for who you are and all you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.